You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number seven in the series. Today's episode is titled Calypso. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are now listening to episode number seven of Odyssey, the podcast, an episode which I am choosing to title Calypso. So if you recall, when we last encountered our boy Odysseus, he was in pretty seriously dire straits. In the previous episode, he managed to lose the final of his ships and the remaining members of his crew. So now Odysseus was all alone. No ship, no crew, and absolutely no idea whatsoever where in the Mediterranean Sea he actually had landed. So our boy, to put it in short order, is physically battered, and we can also assume that Odysseus is deeply psychologically scarred. So now Odysseus has really reached bottom, and we find him washed ashore, lying face down, passed out, on the sand beach of a strange island. And that is where our story will pick up today. So Odysseus, as he lay there unconscious, didn't realize it. But a woman saw him, saw the remains of his ship, and walking swiftly, graciously across the beach, she approached what she thought was a dead body. But when she rolled it over, she recognized there were still a few signs of life in this mortal man, So she gathered him up and she took him back inland to her cavern where she lived in the heart of the glorious island. She lay him down on a bed. Her serving women came in. They gently washed and bathed the stranger. They cleaned him and then, providing a bit of first aid, they brought him gradually and safely back to life again. Well, ladies and gentlemen, at some stage, of course, Odysseus would have woken up and recognized that he wasn't any longer lying face down in a beach, but was lying in a comfortable bed inside of a cool cavern in an absolutely glorious island. And he would have recognized that somebody was looking after him. An absolutely radiant, stunning, gorgeous, well, use whatever hyperbole you wish, a goddess, in fact. A goddess who introduced herself to Odysseus by the name of Calypso. And the goddess explained to Odysseus that Odysseus had landed on her island, a place called Ogygia. And as Odysseus got better and began to wander across the island, he recognized that Ogygia was some form of tropical paradise. Well, over the weeks to come, and we don't know how many weeks it took, Calypso nursed Odysseus back to physical health. It turned out that Calypso's cavern, in fact the entire island, was incredibly well provisioned with the very best of human food and wine. And, well, the combination of food, wine, fresh air exercise, and absolutely no monsters, whirlpools, or cyclopes to worry about can do a wonderful thing in restoring a man or a hero's health to perfection. 
So in no time at all, Odysseus, our boy, was back to 100% healthy, fit hero. But ladies and gentlemen, the psychic scarring which Odysseus had endured on his journeys to date, well, that psychic scarring was going to take an awful lot longer to heal. Now, of course, Homer's Bronze Age world had absolutely no technical term for what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder, but there is absolutely no doubt in my mind or in the mind of an awful lot of scholars who have commented on this story that any human being, and even a hero like Odysseus, having encountered what Odysseus has been through in the past three years in his travels across the Mediterranean Sea, and if you want to go back even further, for the past previous ten years in the horrifying battlefields of Troy, well, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Odysseus now is deep into post-traumatic stress disorder. So, Odysseus, though the physical wounds had healed, Odysseus would have spent much longer on Calypso's island, gradually, gradually, gradually working to recover from those psychic wounds. And Calypso, of course, the immortal goddess, would have sat with him in the cave through all the nightmares, all the flashbacks, and gradually nursed him not only physically but psychically back to health. So eventually we can assume the PTSD, or at least the worst of it, began to pass. And Odysseus moved in his thinking from about the past into worrying, thinking, wondering, and planning about the future. And to put it bluntly, there was a heck of a lot for him to worry about concerning that future. Folks, Odysseus was a bright enough hero that he recognized that he was a hero in a particular form of story, and that the nemesis of that story was none other than the god Poseidon. And Odysseus would have recognized that following blinding Poseidon's son, the Cyclops Polythemus, that virtually every island that Odysseus had been blown to in a storm from that point forward in the story had been an island handpicked by the god Poseidon to cause misery, pain, torture, and terror to the life of Odysseus, his nemesis. So Odysseus now, sitting comfortably and safely on Calypso's island, would have recognized that waiting in the wings just offshore of Calypso's gorgeous island was the god Poseidon, more than willing and happy to take up the torturing of Odysseus again the moment that Odysseus decided to leave. But aside from that, aside from the fear of Poseidon, well, Odysseus was clever enough to think beyond that, to think about, well, what would happen if I actually do thwart Poseidon? What would happen if I actually do someday make it back to my beloved kingdom of Ithaca? And that, of course, raised a whole series of other sources of fear, worry, and concern inside of our hero's mind. Because there were going to be some awkward conversations the moment that Odysseus landed. What was he possibly going to say to all of those Ithacan wives? whose husbands he had managed to lose? And what was he possibly going to say to all of those Ithacan young boys? Boys the same age as his son, Telemachus, who were never going to see their fathers alive again. And finally, how was Odysseus going to explain that of the entire ship and cast and crew who had left for Troy, only he, the commander, had managed to make it safely back home alive? And then finally, of course, Odysseus's thoughts could not have helped but turn to Penelope. Would she still be waiting? Would she still be faithful? And try as he might, Agamemnon's warnings about the faithlessness of women would have echoed in our hero's ears 
one more time. So ladies and gentlemen, once Odysseus recovered from the scars of the past, he was dealing now with the fears and the dangers of the future. And we can only assume that even for a hero like Odysseus, all of those fears eventually turned out to be just too much for any man to bear. And so Odysseus chose to stay on the island with Calypso in this safe, comfortable waiting room of a paradise. And of course, at some stage, folks, well, the inevitable happened. Odysseus and Calypso went from being nurse and patient into lovers. And it's not really a surprise, of course. Our boy Odysseus has a penchant for the ladies, particularly ladies of the goddess Ilk. And, well, we have that entire year of play on Circe's bed as our example of how long Odysseus is happy to stick around with a particularly smoking-hot, sex-crazed goddess. But since we're talking about sex, I think we would be making a fundamental mistake in our understanding to reduce the entire time he was there to one epically long sexcapade between human hero and nymphomaniac goddess. It makes for a great, fun fantasy story, but it's not what I think happened on that island. Homer gives us a clue, actually, because Homer has named his lead character Calypso very, very deliberately, and the word Calypso translated from the Greek translates into the English phrase, she who conceals. And folks, from what we've talked about with Odysseus at this point in his journey home, after all of the physical and psychic trauma that he's experienced, what Odysseus needs more than anything now is concealing. Concealing from his memories of his ship and crew, concealings from his exhaustion at playing Poseidon's relentless games, and concealing from his fears of everything that's facing him back in Ithaca. But most of all, I think what Odysseus needed concealing from at this stage in his journey was himself. It was absolutely exhausting, always being the polytropous man, always being the cleverest, the canniest, the most quick-witted, and the most all-round awesome man in any room. And on Calypso's island, finally, with nobody left to watch him but an immortal goddess. Well, Odysseus finally, finally, finally had a brief respite from his travels to simply exhale and quit being that larger-than-life hero. And so, for some time at least, Odysseus stayed on the island of Ajija, safely and happily concealed in the arms of a goddess who expected absolutely nothing of him beyond some nightly sex, which is hardly a burden, I suppose, and her unconditional love. And for some time at least, it's safe to assume that our boy Odysseus was ridiculously happy. Until, of course, that inevitable day came when Odysseus was not happy. There would have been a day when Odysseus woke up in the morning and secretly began to suspect deep down in his heart of hearts that everything that was happening on Calypso's island was just all too predictable. And in spite of the fact that he was on paradise by any standard that any man could possibly ever imagine, he was actually really getting rather bored.
There's a song, one of my favorite pop songs, if you'll allow me a brief interjection, by a band called The Talking Heads. The song is titled Heaven, and there's a lyric. Heaven. Heaven is a place. A place where nothing, nothing really happens. And I think that that particular lyric defines Calypso's Island. Oh, it was heaven all right, it was paradise, but at the end of the day, it was also profoundly, tediously boring. One day was very much the same as the next. There was nothing to do, there was nothing to think, there was nothing to build, there was nothing to make. And for Odysseus, he would have woken up one morning, no doubt, and realized that he's essentially in some gussied-up version of the very same place that his dear friend Achilles was now residing. And you'll remember, folks, that Achilles in the land of the dead, was treated by everybody there as a king. But when Odysseus had visited Achilles in the land of the dead, where Achilles was king, Achilles had positively hated it. Uh, remember what he said. By God, Odysseus, I'd rather be a slave of a slave and alive on earth than to rule down here over all of the breathless dead. And, of course, what Achilles was missing was agency and, therefore, his own humanity. And it wouldn't have taken very long for somebody as bright as Odysseus to recognize that though the prison was much more attractive than was Achilles, Odysseus too was missing agency and therefore missing his own humanity. Heaven is a wonderful place, but it's a place where nothing really happens. And we human beings, to be fully human, we need to be constantly engaged in making things happen. And so Odysseus recognized it was time, well due time, for him to be leaving the island and going home. So at that stage, we can only assume Odysseus had approached Calypso and announced to the goddess, his lover, that it was his intention to return to Ithaca as soon as possible. And Odysseus would have done his best using his eloquent wordsmith vocabulary to try to explain to the immortal goddess exactly why it was that he wanted to choose Ithaca over the paradise of Ogygia, Penelope, a middle-aged and mortal woman, over the paradise of Calypso, and mortality, because that is a human condition, over the immortality which Calypso was clearly providing an offering to him. And poor Calypso. At that stage, being an immortal goddess, she would have had absolutely no frame of reference to understand what, to her, from her perspective, would have been Odysseus's profoundly ridiculous and irrational series of choices. And when Odysseus refused to relent and see the goddess's reason, Calypso had turned nasty. She had decided that what she would simply do is keep Odysseus there on the island against his will. She would simply wait him out. Eclipso had eternity on her side, and so even if Odysseus cried, whined, complained, and went into some sort of a deep depression or funk for a few years, as he grieved the loss of Penelope, as he grieved the loss of Telemachus, as he grieved the loss of homecoming in Ithaca, well, Calypso was a bright enough goddess and a patient enough goddess to simply wait until that phase of her lover's experience passed. And then she knew the day would come when Odysseus would wake up in the morning, 
forget everything about Ithaca, and then settle down into a comfortable, immortal, eternal paradise once again with her. From Calypso's perspective, since she was in no rush, she could wait forever for her boy Odysseus to come around and fall in love with her once again. And at that stage, folks, Odysseus would have realized the shattering truth. He was condemned to immortality with Calypso. Time everywhere else would pass. Everybody he knew would die. And his name, his deeds, his exploits would be forgotten forever from history. But all the time, he would be stuck in an island condemned to an eternity of youth, health, and endless virility, serving the needs of a love-struck immortal goddess. As Homer explains, At night, it is true, he slept with her in her cave, but there was no choice. She was passionate, and he had to. And Odysseus recognized that this was the heaven that he was condemned to forever. So he cried. He dreamed of Ithaca. But most of all, he dreamed and hoped to die. The one thing she was never, ever, ever going to allow her lover to do. And ladies and gentlemen, that was the point in the story when the Olympian gods, watching this whole drama play out down on the island of Ojigia, had finally, finally, finally decided that it might be a good time to intervene. So, if you will travel with me, I'd like to take you all the way up to the top of Mount Olympus, to the home of the Olympian gods, and we can pick up Homer's account of the story from there. But folks, as we are traveling up to Mount Olympus, well, maybe just a quick note is in order to you, my faithful listeners. The first seven years of Odysseus's time on Calypso's island, the story that I just told you now, well, that story is actually not related to us anywhere inside of Homer's Odyssey. So if you put down this podcast and go looking for it, you will not find it. But what you will find, or at least I am confident that I found, are sufficient clues, hints, allusions, and references to allow me or you to forensically piece together some pretty reasonable speculation on what likely happened during those seven years. But to be clear, what you just listened to was Jeff's Muse. And to be fair, other storytellers working with the same or different hints, clues, allusions, and references might have pieced together a somewhat different but equally plausible account of the seven years. But from this point forward, I can assure you we are into Homer's formerly related narrative. In books one and five, if you want to go hunting. And the story of Odysseus in year seven with Calypso picks up at this point on Mount Olympus. And so, seven years to the day when Odysseus landed on Calypso's island, the Olympian deities were gathered up in Zeus's great hall. 
and the Olympian deities were doing what they usually did. They were engaged in their very favorite pastime. The Olympian deities were gossiping about we human beings down here on Earth. And Zeus was, well, he was in fine form that day. Zeus, from his golden throne, was pontificating on the horrible house of Atreus, the Agamemnon family tree, if you recall. And Zeus was going on at length about all of the sex, the violence, the incest, and the adultery that dominated that terrible family tree. Now, just an aside, folks, Zeus was not likely a sufficiently imaginative or clever deity to recognize that the Atreus family tree mirrored alarmingly the Olympian family tree from which he sprung. But back to our story. The other deities listened as Zeus pontificated, and then when a leg came in the conversation, Athena, Zeus's daughter, the goddess of wisdom, gently attempted to change the topic of conversation. Turning to Zeus, she spoke. Father, I am agonizing about Odysseus and his bad luck. For too long he has suffered, with no friends, sea all around him, sea on every side, out on an island where a goddess lives. She detains that unfortunate man ceaselessly. With her soft, insidious words, she tries to entice him and make him forget his homeland Ithaca. But Odysseus, heartsick to even glimpse a wisp of smoke from his own chimney, Odysseus longs to die. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you, you are likely thinking, well, wonderful, finally, uh, Odysseus is going to get some help. A, a deity, uh, in fact, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, is going to intervene in his case and get him off of that island. But you might also quite equally be wondering, if Athena cares so much about Odysseus, then uh, why the Hades has she not done a thing to help him over the preceding seven years? And I think I can offer you a couple of explanations. The first, of course, is that Athena is an immortal goddess. Like the goddess Calypso, she has absolutely no understanding, appreciation, or sense of human time. So as a consequence, while Odysseus was languishing for seven long years on the island, for Athena, an immortal goddess up on Mount Olympus, seven long years is no time at all. So there is the possibility that Athena was simply unaware that Odysseus really wanted to get home now, that it really mattered that those seven years on the island were going to make a big difference inside of his life. But there's actually a much more obvious and clear reason why Athena did not intervene on Odysseus's behalf until seven years into his exile on Calypso's island. And that reason has to do with domestic politics, very ugly and delicate domestic politics, up on the home of the Olympian gods. Specifically, the politics between Zeus and his brother Poseidon. Now, if you recall way back to Trojan War, the podcast, you'll remember that Poseidon, like Athena, had been a huge fan of the Greek cause during that war. But Poseidon's loyalties had changed rather radically three years following the Trojan War, specifically on the day when Odysseus had rammed a fiery-hot, pokey stick into his son, the Cyclops's eye. And on that day, or from that day, Poseidon, answering his son, the Cyclops's curse against Odysseus, had been doing his level best to make Odysseus's life an absolute misery. 
sending a long string of monsters and temptations Odysseus's way. And gradually, ladies and gentlemen, and while you've witnessed the gradually through the first six episodes of Odyssey the Podcast, Poseidon had managed to winnow Odysseus's fleet down from twelve ships to no ships, and to winnow Odysseus's crew down from six hundred men to absolutely no men at all. But in spite of that, Odysseus seemed, annoyingly seemed as far as Poseidon was concerned, hell-bent on still wanting to go home. And it had been at that stage, in some desperation, I suppose, that Poseidon had chosen to wash his enemy Odysseus up onto one final honeypot of a temptation. A temptation, Poseidon was convinced, that absolutely no self-respecting, red-blooded male hero could possibly resist. Being washed ashore a tropical paradise and being forced to live for eternity in the arms of a smoking-hot, sex-crazed nymphomaniac of a goddess. A nice prison, Poseidon thought, but a prison all the same. And at that stage, Poseidon had pretty well washed his hands of Odysseus, assuming that Odysseus would quite reasonably choose to stay with Calypso forever. But ladies and gentlemen, up on Mount Olympus, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, was wise enough to recognize that if she raised the issue of freeing Odysseus from Calypso's clutches, then Poseidon would remember his lifelong enemy, and Poseidon would protest. And if Poseidon protested, Zeus would have no choice. His hands would be tied. He would have to continue to allow Calypso to hold Odysseus captive. So, Athena had to sit and wait up on Mount Olympus, which meant that Odysseus had to sit wait, cry, and hope to die down on Calypso's island. And nothing would have happened save for a day seven years in when Odysseus and Athena, I suppose, both got their big break. Here's what happened on that day. On that particular day, Poseidon, up on Mount Olympus, received a formal invitation. It turned out that a remote and distant race of human beings, referred to by Homer as the people of Ethiopia, had decided that, being big friends of Poseidon, they wanted to host a banquet in their favorite deity's honor. They promised that there would be a prodigious sacrifice of ox and sheep and lambs and goats. It would be a spectacular and wonderful smelling affair for Poseidon. And so Poseidon, thrilled at the prospect, had packed his Olympian bags, jutted across the Mediterranean Sea to attend the banquet in his honor. Now, folks, just a quick aside on the nature of the Olympian deities, in case we've forgotten. The Olympian deities, of course, were immortal, but they were neither omnipotent nor omnipresent, which practically meant that if Poseidon was way off in distant Ethiopia watching barbecues in his honor, he would not be able to see anything happening anywhere but in Ethiopia, which meant that Athena had a brief window of opportunity in which she could attempt to convince her father, Zeus, king of the gods, to free Odysseus from Calypso's clutches, without Poseidon being any the wiser. So Athena wasted absolutely no time. Approaching her father Zeus, she first of all played the guilt card, reminding Zeus that Odysseus had been an absolutely wonderful barbecuer in Zeus's honor throughout the entire Trojan War. 
And hence, well, Zeus actually owed Odysseus a solid. And then she spoke. But in spite of all of the sacrifices, father, you were untouched by Odysseus's sorrow. What do you have against him, father, that you have made him suffer this way? Well, Zeus had protested mightily. Oh, how can you say such a thing, my dear child? I could never forget Odysseus, that excellent man, who surpasses all mortals in wisdom, and has sacrificed to me more than to all others. But then Zeus had lowered his voice. There were other deities in the great hall, and some of them owed their allegiances to Poseidon too. The truth is that Poseidon holds a grudge against Odysseus. He hates him for blinding the eye of Polythemus the Cyclops. And my brother, ever since that day, has relentlessly stood in Odysseus's way. He stops short of killing him, of course, but he torments his heart. But now is the time. Let's all think of a way to bring Odysseus back home. And Poseidon, well, I suppose he will just have to swallow his anger. And ladies and gentlemen, the moment that Athena heard the decree from Zeus, she wasted absolutely no time. Athena knew that her dad was a fickle god at best, and if Poseidon at this stage were to re-emerge into the room, well, poor Odysseus could find himself trapped on Calypso's island pretty well forever. And so Athena proposed a plan. Great father, she suggested, if the blessed gods at last will let Odysseus return back home, then hurry, we must send our messenger Hermes. He must swoop down to Ogygia right away and tell the beautiful Calypso that we have formed a firm decision that Odysseus has waited long enough. He must go home. And Zeus, warming to Athena's plan, had agreed. So he had called in his son, the messenger Hermes, and Hermes had received the following orders. Hermes, you are my messenger. So, go tell the goddess Calypso our fixed intention, that Odysseus must go back home. He has endured enough. It is granted him to see the ones he loves beneath his own high roof, in his own country. And ladies and gentlemen, just a brief aside here, but if you've been holding your breath for the previous six episodes and wondering if Odysseus actually ever would make it back to Ithaca, then now you have it from the king of the gods mouth himself. Odysseus ultimately is fated somehow at some time and in some fashion to make it back to Ithaca. And he is fated in some way, in some fashion, in some time to see the ones again that he loves. But I would caution you against any great exhale. Because inside of that fate, there is still room for a world of misery, hurt, and adventure to follow. So, back to our plot. Hermes, the messenger god, strapped on his magical sandals, and then Hermes, launching himself from high Mount Olympus, flew like a flash or, if we want to be accurate, flew like his future incarnation as the Flash across the Mediterranean Sea down to the island of Ogygia. Arriving at the island, Hermes paused to marvel at its beauty. 
Homer tells us that the island was absolutely stunning, and even gods, when they visited Ojigia, were actually blown away by the work that Calypso had done with the landscaping and the general decorating. But then after a brief sightseeing tour, if you will, Hermes had recognized he was on a diplomatic mission, and time was of the essence. So he had located Calypso's cavern, and standing at the door had found the goddess, as Homer says, singing sweetly and weaving. Which seems to be, if you remember the Circe episode, the main thing that goddesses do with their day. We, of course, already know how they like to spend their nights. Well, Hermes had stepped into Calypso's cavern. Calypso, of course, being an immortal omniscient deity, already knew why he was there, but she chose to feign ignorance. Smiling at Hermes, she spoke. What brings you here, Hermes? This is an honor. You are always, always most welcome, and what a long time it has been. Say what is on your mind, Hermes, and I will certainly do it, if I can. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you will note, because we are all, of course, practiced experts on the art of Xenia by this stage in Odyssey, the podcast, that Calypso is engaged in a deliberate or possibly an accidental diplomatic slight. She has asked Hermes, her guest, his business, prior to providing Hermes, her guest, with a hot meal. Now, whether Hermes noticed the snub or the slight or the oversight, we don't really know. He was a good diplomat. He kept his emotions concealed. But it is telling that Hermes did not answer Calypso's question. Rather, he sat down at his table and refreshed himself with some wonderful ambrosia and a nice mug of red nectar. And then, only after he had completed his banquet, did the diplomat Hermes deign to speak. Calypso, you are a goddess, I a god. And yet, you ask me why I am here? In other words, ladies and gentlemen, Hermes was saying, you already damn well know why I'm here, but you're forcing me to say it anyway. Then Hermes continued, Well, I will tell you then. Zeus has ordered me to come. I did not want to. Still, none of us can sway or check the will of Zeus. And in this, of course, Hermes was feigning sympathy and understanding, plus going into his don't-shoot-me-I'm-only-the-messenger routine. And at that stage, Hermes got to the bad news. Em, Zeus says that you have a man here, a man who has suffered more than all the others who went to Troy. For nine long years they fought there, and in the tenth they plundered the city of Priam. Zeus tells you to let him go now, immediately. It is not ordained that he spend his life here, with you on this island. He is fated to reach his own country and finally see his home and the people he loves. And folks, that last little Hermes phrase, and the people he loves, whether it was a deliberate dig at Calypso or not, we'll never really know. All we know is that the moment that Hermes, the diplomat messenger, finished speaking, Calypso, the immortal goddess, lost it. Homer reports that Calypso first shuddered, and then she let fly at Hermes. 
And of course, Calypso was enraged, disappointed, heartbroken, and heartsick at being ordered to give up the mortal man that she quite genuinely believed she loved. But Calypso was furious about something else too. She was absolutely furious about what she saw as the gender double standard at play inside of Zeus's edicts. Listen. You cruel, jealous gods. You hate it whenever any goddess takes a man to sleep with as a lover in her bed. And Calypso, to make her point, had myriad specific examples at the ready. Remember that time? Remember that time when rosy-fingered Dawn made love to Orion? You gods envied her. And then you hunted down and you killed Orion. And then she went on. Or do you remember that time when the goddess Demeter, when she indulged her desires, when she made love with a human in the field of the three plowed furrows? Well, soon enough, Zeus found out, and furious, he struck the man dead with a bolt of lightning. And ladies and gentlemen, Zeus's decision to kill Demeter's lover appeared to have nothing to do with Demeter's location and choice of venue, though I can't help but wonder what it would be like to make love in a field of three plowed furrows. Rather, it appears, Zeus was simply enforcing what Calypso rightly credited as the deific double standard at work up in Zeus's kingdom. Male gods were encouraged to take human lovers. But when a goddess took a human lover, well, it almost always ended badly for the goddess, and especially badly for the human man. Uh, but let's return to Calypso, because she certainly was nowhere near done with her complaint. So, now you male gods are upset with me for living with a man. A man that I saved. Zeus pinned his ship and with his flash of lightning, he smashed it to pieces. All of his friends were killed out on the wine-dark sea. This man alone, clutching the keel, was swept by wind and wave until he came here to my home. I cared for him and I loved him. I even offered to make him unaging and deathless. Still, I know that no other god can change the will of Zeus. So let him go, if that is Zeus's final order. And Hermes, happy to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible, now wasted absolutely no time on diplomatic niceties. He had Calypso where he needed her. Good! See that you do it! And don't provoke Zeus, or you will be very sorry. And with that, Hermes, the messenger god, vanished. And that left Calypso all alone in her cavern, knowing that she was going to have to walk across to the other side of the island, find Odysseus, and bring him the news. News that was breaking her heart, but news she knew that would fill her human captive's heart with hope, and renewed joy. Homer tells us that Calypso found Odysseus crying down by the shore. His eyes were always tearful. He wept his sweet life away in longing to go back home, since she no longer pleased him. And folks, that final part of the sentence from Homer is crucial. Since she no longer pleased him.
And it's important for us as we watch this couple struggle now to understand that some of the years when the two of them had been together had been good years. If we want to use Calypso's words, we could say that the two of them for a time had been in love with each other. Of course, then it had soured and then Calypso had gone from lover to jailer. But as we step into their conversation now, folks, I think it is important for us to remember that these are two ex-lovers with a shared history of mutual love. Now, of course, they are in deep pain, but that was not always the case on Calypso's tropical island. Well, Calypso approached Odysseus sitting on the shore, and to her credit, now that Zeus had decreed Odysseus's fate, Calypso did her very best to approach the man she loved with some form of tenderness. Calypso spoke. Poor man, stop grieving, please. I am ready at last to send you away. So come, cut down some trees and make a boat. I will stock it myself with food and water for you, and then I will send a fair wind behind you to take you all the way back to your own dear country. Now, for Odysseus, these words would have been absolutely unanticipated and have come as a total shock. We can only assume that Odysseus, a brilliant wordsmith, had used every rhetorical device inside of his considerable repertoire to try already to get Calypso to leave him and had only been reduced to sitting, crying, and hoping for death when he recognized that none of his rhetorical skills were going to work. But now, here she was, suddenly offering him the promise of immediate freedom. Should he trust her? Goddess, Odysseus replied, you must have some other purpose here, not my homecoming. So no, goddess, I will not set out to sea unless you first swear a mighty oath that you're not planning yet more pain for me. But Calypso, laughing, spoke in reassuring language. She replied, Oh, Odysseus, what a great rascal you are. No one with a mind less cunning than yours would ever have thought of such a thing now. All right. And then, folks, in a sort of cross-my-heart-hope-to-die moment, Calypso had promised Odysseus that she was not trying to cheat. All right. Let earth be my witness, and heaven above, and downward-flowing waters of the river Styx, that I am not plotting the slightest mischief against you, Odysseus. And then, in a poignantly bittersweet moment, poor Calypso, a goddess who had bound a mortal against his will for years, had desperately tried to make that mortal understand why she had done it. Odysseus, I, I really do feel for you. My heart is not made of iron. And somehow, ladies and gentlemen, Calypso's reassurances must have succeeded. Homer tells us what happened next. The goddess quickly turned and led the way. He followed in her footsteps. They reached the cave together, man and goddess. The goddess gave him human food and drink, while slave girls brought her nectar and ambrosia. And they satisfied their hunger and their thirst. 
But folks, after that leisurely, loving, trusting dinner, Calypso moved to the conversation into very dangerous territory indeed. Odysseus, your plans are always changing. Do you really want to go back to that home you love so much? Well, I wish you the best. Yet, if you had any idea of all of the hardships that you will have to endure before you reach home, you would stay with me here. But dangers and hardships were no longer going to frighten a man like Odysseus. He had seen a bellyful of them already. So Calypso launched onto a new conversational tack. And if you stay, let me make you immortal. And folks, when Odysseus had turned down that rather remarkable offer, Calypso had broken down and got to what was at the very heart and truth of her hurt and of her confusion. Though you might wish to see that wife you always pine for. And anyway, I know that my body is better than hers. I, I am taller, too. It, it would be unimaginable for a mere woman to come even close to me in beauty. And fortunately for our boy Odysseus, he recognized Calypso's assertion for what it truly was. A desperate, hurting, and confused lover's final plea. Is the person you are leaving me for really more attractive to you than me? And if ever, if ever, if ever, Odysseus required his considerable rhetorical skills, now was that time. Because as we all know, desperate, hurting, and confused lovers can very quickly become desperate, hurting, confused, and vindictive lovers. So, how do you diplomatically soothe the wounded ego of a goddess? while at the same time affirming your strong desire to leave her for another woman? Well, Odysseus paused for a moment, considering his linguistic tack, and then he found a way. Do not be enraged at me, great goddess. You are right. I know that my modest wife Penelope could never match your beauty. She is only a woman while you are an immortal and will never grow old. I know that. But then deftly, Odysseus had subtly changed the subject of conversation. Yet even so, I cannot help longing for home. And in that word, home, as opposed to the danger-laden word, Penelope, Odysseus gently removed sex, love, beauty, romance, and the other woman from their conversational equation. Odysseus essentially explained to Calypso that it was not Penelope he missed, but his own country, his own dear Ithaca. And ladies and gentlemen, it worked. Odysseus's gentle rhetorical skills managed to reassure Calypso and appease the goddess's wounded pride. And since he was leaving her, 
It was really the only gift that he had left to give. And so, with the conclusion of that conversation, the rift between the two of them, goddess and human, was finally repaired. The pain was replaced by their memories of genuine mutual love. And as Homer tells us, as they were speaking, the sun set and darkness came in. And then they moved further into the cave. And they made love with great pleasure. And then they slept in each other's arms. Come morning, Odysseus wasted absolutely no time. Now was the time to leave. So, turning to Calypso and asking for help, he accepted her construction materials, and Calypso provided an axe, an adze, a drill, and Odysseus went into the forest and began to fell trees. Five days later, he had constructed a fully kitted-out raft, suitable for the journey to come. Once the raft was built, Calypso and Odysseus brought it down to the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Calypso brought down food, drink, provisions, glorious clothing, everything that Odysseus would need on his homeward journey. And then Calypso had provided instructions. Somehow she knew that his next destination was the land of a people called the Phaeacians. He would find perfect Xenia and the help he needed to finally make it back to Ithaca. And with that, Odysseus boarded his raft and pushed out to sea. Was there a final kiss and a tender embrace? We don't really know. But we do know that as Odysseus sailed away from Calypso's land, the goddess sent her lost human lover a final gift. The raft sails filled with a gentle, calm breeze, and it sped, guided by a loving goddess's will, across the Mediterranean Sea, towards the land of the Phaeacians towards hope, and ultimately towards home. Seventeen days at sea passed, uneventfully, and then on the eighteenth day, the land of the Phaeacians came into sight. And that, of course, is when disaster struck. Poseidon had returned a little bit early from the Ethiopian banquet, and flying across the Mediterranean Sea, he had looked down and seen Odysseus's raft, very, very near the shores of the land of the Phaeacians. And Poseidon, realizing what must have happened up there in Mount Olympus in his absence, well, Poseidon went nuts. This is outrageous. So it seems the other gods have changed their plans about Odysseus. Well, I was out of town. And he has almost reached the land of the Phaeacians, where he is destined to bring his long ordeal to an end. Yet before he is done, I think I can give him a bellyful more of troubles. And Poseidon, the god of the sea, had conjured up yet one more final epic storm. A storm so huge, so majestic, so wild, that it goes on and on and on and on for pages inside of Homer's Odyssey. If you want to read it, go to book 5, beginning at lines 291, and then forward. But I'm absolutely not going to bore you or waste any of your time relaying the epic details of that Technicolor storm to you here now, because the storm is really, ultimately, pointless, ridiculous, and impotent. 
Zeus has decreed that Odysseus will make it safely back to the land of the Phaeacians, that he will be going home, and that Poseidon's role inside of the story from this point forward is pretty well over. The only interest in the storm, of course, is one clever little moment when a deus ex machina sea nymph shows up to provide our hero Odysseus with a magical life jacket. Yes, a life jacket. Meanwhile, Athena, well, Athena is watching the entire thing from her perch up on Mount Olympus. And she waits until Poseidon has had his fun and vented his deific spleen. There's a good chance that Athena is happy to see Odysseus take the brunt of it because it means Poseidon will be all shagged out and less difficult to deal with once he shows up in the Great Hall at Olympus. But then, when all hope looks lost for Odysseus, when it looks as though he is about to die for sure, the goddess Athena steps in and safely ferries our hero and her boy to safety on the Phaeacian shore. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, that's an absolutely perfect place for me to leave this episode of Odyssey the Podcast. So, we'll be into the post-story commentary in a moment, and let me just give you a clue on what I'm going to be talking about in that commentary. First of all, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the goddess Athena, providing you with a bit of a primer, if you will, because Athena has been largely silent and invisible in the first six episodes of Odyssey the Podcast. But from this point forward, through the balance of our storytelling together, the goddess of wisdom Athena is going to play an increasingly prominent and interventionist role inside of the plot. So, in the post-story commentary, I want to take a few moments to talk about Athena, who she is, and why she cares so much about our boy Odysseus. And when I finish that, I want to revisit the problem of the seven missing Calypso years. Inside of the story that I just completed telling you now, I did my storyteller's best to flesh out those seven years, but it does beg a rather obvious question about why they're neither Homer, the omniscient narrator, nor Odysseus, his usually effusive storyteller, provide us with any specific details of what happened. I have a hypothesis about what happened, and I will share it with you in the post-story commentary. So, let's take a moment, pause, refresh ourselves, refill our coffee cups, and then leap into the post-story commentary. So, welcome back, folks, to the post-story commentary. Now, I promised you in the teaser to this commentary that what I wanted to do was spend some time talking about the goddess of wisdom, Athena. And folks, I can tell you without any fear of plot spoilers that moving forward in Odyssey the Podcast, from this point forward right to the dramatic and exciting and amazing conclusion to the entire series, well, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, is going to play a more and more featured and prominent role inside of our story. So I thought it might be time for a quick primer on all things Athena, goddess of wisdom. So, let's begin at the beginning with Athena, the goddess of wisdom's origin story. Now, the origin story, of course, usually involves parentage, and in the case of Olympian gods, parentage is always a little bit of a twisted, interesting, and usually very kinky little affair. Athena's father was Zeus, king of the gods. Now, Athena's mother was actually not the wife of Zeus, king of the gods, that you're familiar with. 
Zeus's current wife, and the wife of Zeus all through Homer's story, is Hera, of course. Zeus's sister. But back in the early days, before Zeus became uh, quite so freakily twisted with interbreeding members of his own family, Zeus confined himself to marrying as his first wife, not a sister, but instead, just a distant cousin. Her name was Metis. Now that is spelled M-E-T-I-S, and ladies and gentlemen, when I wander through the internet looking at different pronunciations of that name, I come up with at least three or four. So you can choose how to pronounce the name of Zeus's first wife, or you can do the other thing and track down and consult an ancient Bronze Age Greek linguist. The choice is yours. Now, back to the story. What do we know about Zeus's first wife, this woman named Metis? Well, we know that she was cunning, that she was clever, and she was a little bit of a trickster goddess. Now, for whatever reason, Zeus, back in the day, caught sight of Metis, decided that I like this girl, and then these stories differ. He either gently and genteely proposed to her down on one knee, said, Metis, I really like you. Would you care to come home, marry me, and then we can settle into a happy relationship together? Or, on the other hand, Zeus caught sight of Metis and did what he usually did, which was to overwhelm and rape the poor woman. I'm going with the second account, as it is more in keeping with our god of the wandering thunderbolts, modus operandi. But whatever the case, Metis was impregnated by Zeus, and of course, when you are impregnated by any Olympian god, but particularly Zeus, you immediately find yourself with child. So, Metis, Zeus's wife, consort, concubine, call her what you will, found herself pregnant. Well, as the pregnancy proceeded, Zeus caught wind of an obscure prophecy. And of course, inside of Greek mythology, there was always, always, always at least one obscure prophecy. But this prophecy was particularly upsetting to the god of the great thunderbolt. The prophecy stated that Metis, Zeus's consort or wife, would give birth to two of Zeus's children. There would be a powerful daughter who would prove friendly and eminently useful to her father, the king of the gods. And there would be a very powerful son who would prove quite unfriendly and someday actually overthrow and destroy his father, the king of the gods. Well, the prophecy quite rightly freaked Zeus out. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, there was a proud family history of potter-side inside of the Zeus family tree. Zeus had got the job of being god of the universe by killing his own dad. Who had got the job of being god of the universe by killing his dad before him? So it was pretty obvious to Zeus when he heard the prophecy that history and mythology and prophecy was setting up to repeat itself once again. But, most frustrating of all for Zeus, the prophecy, as in the case of most prophecies, turned out to be annoyingly vague on specific details. And the critical detail on which the prophecy offered no useful intel to Zeus was on the question of which child, the helpful daughter, or the patricidal son, would be conceived 
first. And that left Zeus with no choice. His wife, Metis, was pregnant, and there was absolutely no way that Zeus was going to allow that wife to carry a potential patricidal son to term. So Zeus did some thinking, and then did the only reasonable thing that a god in his situation could do. He ate his wife, swallowing Metis whole and hoping that her death would put to an end any children of Metis and of Zeus from ever, ever, ever being born. But folks, I told you that Metis means cunning and craftiness, and our goddess Metis was eminently cunning, crafty, and when it came right down to it, quite pragmatic too. When she realized that Zeus had caught wind of the prophecy and knew that she and the child she was carrying were sure to die at Zeus's hands, well, Metis made the best of a very bad situation. She decided to allow herself to be eaten by her husband Zeus, but to make very sure that instead of chewing her up into tiny little bits, he simply swallowed her down his massive gullet whole. And Matissa's reasoning was simple. If she was simply swallowed whole, as opposed to being ground up by the teeth of the king of the gods, well, she might survive the swallowage and find herself residing in Zeus's gut, very much alive and still very much pregnant. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what happened. Zeus swallowed Metis. Metis and her unborn child survived the swallowing and found themselves in Zeus, king of the gods, gut. Now, this is where the story gets hard to believe, although that likely happened for most of us about five minutes ago. Inside of her husband Zeus's belly, the pragmatic goddess Metis got to work. She realized that someday that baby she was carrying would come to term and the child would be born and somehow would emerge and then have to confront dad. So Matisse, not sure whether she was carrying a girl or the boy, well, Matisse set about forging for the inevitable child a suit of glorious bronze armor including a full helmet, a spear, and a fearsome-looking shield. Matissa's reasoning being that, well, if it's a boy born, or if it's a girl born, and Zeus doesn't take the time to check, at least the child born will have a fighting chance by being well-armed in his or her confrontation with Dad, the King of the Gods. So, Matissa went to work inside of Zeus's gut, forging this glorious suit of armor. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the forging of armor is a very, very loud, noisy, banging, and messy business. And eventually, the sound of the banging, the clashing, the grinding, the polishing, the forging inside of Zeus's gut drove the king of the gods to absolute distraction. He had no idea what was causing all the ringing, the banging, and the noise, but he knew it was absolutely no fun at all for him. So he ended up with a terrible, fearsome, epically large headache. Well, eventually, in desperation, Zeus went looking for some help with the headache. 
and he found Hephaestus, the blacksmith god of the Olympian forge, if you will, and he explained his problem to Hephaestus. Well, Hephaestus considered the options, turned around to Zeus and said, well, the best I can suggest, Father Zeus, is that we remove the top of your skull and then you can reach in with your hand, fish around and discover whatever the noisy thing is inside and pull it out. So, Hephaestus instructed Zeus to hold very still. Hephaestus took his sharpest and most reliable axe and with a mighty swing, he severed off the top of the skull of the fortunately immortal king of the gods. Zeus reached in, fished around, till he felt for the bit that felt out of place inside of his gut, and then reaching deep in, he hauled out with his hand and pulled out his full-grown daughter. The fully armed and weapon-kitted out daughter, Athena. Hi, Dad. She announced, I'm your new daughter. My name is Athena. And I, Dad, I am the goddess of wisdom. And so, ladies and gentlemen, wisdom personified that day left Zeus, king of the gods. And until this day, when I'm talking now, wisdom continues to reside not in Zeus, but inside his daughter, the goddess of wisdom. Athena. Now, you're saying, what about Matisse? What happened to her? And what about that boy child? And here's what I can tell you. Folks, Matisse is still currently very much alive and still safely lodged inside of the gut of the current king of the gods. And Zeus is hoping that from inside of his gut, Matisse will prove absolutely incapable of getting pregnant and therefore that prophesied son will never come to pass. But I would caution you and I would caution Zeus were he asking for advice. Given the bizarre twists, turns, and general kinkiness of the Olympian family tree, no doubt someday in the eternal future to come, Zeus will find some way to impregnate Matisse, who will then find herself pregnant bring a son to term, and that son will somehow emerge from Zeus's body and overthrow his father. In Greek mythology, the story is never, ever completely over. But meanwhile, back to the daughter Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And folks, I have to put on my scholarly hat here for a moment and spend a few moments with you exploring this concept of wisdom. And here's why I need to do so. Because folks, our contemporary 20th and 21st century conceptions of wisdom or of what it means to be wise or what a god or a goddess of wisdom might look like well, our conceptions are profoundly different from the conceptions of wisdom that show up inside of Homer's story. Ladies and gentlemen, most of us today, if we were asked to visualize or give some concrete example of a deific or of a magical being who embodied the qualities of wisdom, well, what we would do is we would turn to our favorite comic books, our novels, our television series, or our movies in order to cite examples. And after some thought, we would likely come up with the following short list. Merlin, 
the wizard from Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Gandalf, the wizard from Lord of the Rings. Obi-Wan Kenobi, the wise Jedi from Star Wars. And Dumbledore, the wizard from the world of Harry Potter. So let's take a moment and examine these 20th and 21st century exemplars of wisdom, if you will, and take a look at what they all share in common. They are all modest. They are all deeply moral. They are all incredibly kind and good. And all of them, all of the time, consistently champion the common and the collective good over the egotistical desires of the self. Oh, and they all, of course, have long white beards, though I doubt that that is an absolutely necessary condition to contemporary wisdom. But folks, whatever the case, the version of wisdom that we modern readers or listeners have hardwired into our heads is, and here's where the scholarly bit begins, a profoundly different sort of wisdom than the wisdom embodied in and championed by the Homeric goddess Athena. And when we meet Athena and her boy Odysseus inside of Homer's two epic stories, well, we contemporary listeners and readers find ourselves usually in for some immediate and serious cognitive dissonance. Because quite simply put, Homer's Athena does not look or act at all like Merlin, Gandalf, Obi-Wan, or Dumbledore. And further, Odysseus, the lead character of Homer's Odyssey, is about as far away in his values, his disposition, and his temperament from Arthur, from Frodo, from Luke, or from Harry as any hero could possibly be and still be considered a hero. Ladies and gentlemen, as we already know, Odysseus our boy Odysseus, Athena's boy Odysseus, is a liar, a cheat, a rape and pillage pirate, and above all, a shamelessly self-interested egotist. And for those of you who traveled with me through Trojan War, the podcast, well, you also know that our boy and Athena's boy Odysseus has absolutely no compunctions at all about framing innocent men, orchestrating the sacrifice of innocent girls, and encouraging the murder of innocent babies. All in all, I think we can agree that Merlin, Gandalf, Obi-Wan, or Dumbledore might have some serious issues with our boy Odysseus. But here's the weird thing. In spite of this, Athena, the goddess of wisdom from Homer's story, absolutely adores Odysseus. Oh, Odysseus, you clever rascal, so duplicitous, so talented at lying. No man can plan and talk like you. And I, well... I am no one among the gods for my craftiness. I could never abandon a man as eloquent and as quick-witted as you. 
Now, folks, I have to confess that for quite a few years of my life, I could not find a way to square the circle of a goddess of wisdom who appeared to be championing and even reveling in the actions of a man as amoral and duplicitous and shamelessly self-interested as Odysseus. Why would a wise goddess want anything to do with this guy? I often wondered. Shouldn't she be off supporting a man who is more dutiful, more virtuous, more noble, and more self-sacrificing? Maybe she should be the goddess who champions Hector of the Trojans, for example. But then, one day, voicing these doubts, these questions, and these concerns out loud, I suppose, an individual much wiser than me took the trouble to explain to me the source and the basis of my confusion. Here's what I learned. It turns out that the ancient Greeks had many many words for wisdom, and further, that they divided the overall broad category of wisdom into a whole series of smaller subsections or branches of wisdom, if you will. And the particular branch or sort of wisdom, called Metis wisdom, championed by the goddess Athena, was the sort of wisdom dedicated to situational pragmatism, to cleverness, and to the practical ability to get oneself, by hook or by crook, out of any sort of a jam. My mistake, folks, had been in assuming that Athena was the goddess of moral wisdom. But folks, Homer's Athena is not even remotely interested in what we today might consider to be moral, ethical, or even honest behavior. She is, after all, ultimately, a goddess whose greatest pleasure is in employing cunning, cleverness, and situational pragmatism to make the best of whatever lemons life throws at you, and out of those lemons, make some sort of lemonade. Which, of course, is precisely what Odysseus her boy Odysseus does so supremely well. And it is why the two of them, human and goddess, are such kindred spirits and such perfect traveling companions. And ladies and gentlemen, as Odysseus carries on through this story, he is going to face a whole interesting whack of particularly new monsters and temptations. And Athena more and more as our story progresses, is going to step out of the shadows and onto center stage. As Odysseus's co-conspirator, as his confidant, and on occasion, as the deus ex machina magical props provider to help our boy on his journey home. And that's a great place to leave our quick primer on Athena. So I'm going to quickly stop, grab myself some water, or maybe a stronger libation, if you will, and then carry on with part two of our post-story commentary, an examination of the missing seven Calypso years. Now, folks, as we know, Homer places Odysseus on Calypso's island for seven long years. So my question boils down to this. 
Why keep Odysseus with Calypso for seven years? When you, as the storyteller Homer, could have simply kept him there for, I don't know, five days, maybe a week at most, and then just as plausibly as far as the plot and story is concerned, have sent your boy Odysseus home then. So why, Homer, why Odysseus with Calypso for seven years, as opposed to, say, just seven days? Now, Folks, I have a bit of a hypothesis about why Homer, or Homers, or the committee of Homers who cobbled or stitched together the Odyssey, came up with this seven years over seven days idea. So, I want you to imagine an alternative version of Homer's Odyssey in which Odysseus arrives home in Ithaca in year 13, as opposed to the real version of the Odyssey, in which Odysseus arrives home in Ithaca in year 20. And I think that if you will indulge me and play this imagination game with me, it will make very clear why Homer made the Odysseus on Calypso's Island for seven years decision that he did. So, here goes. Jeff's alternative version of the Odyssey, with Odysseus staying with Calypso, for merely one week. And so Odysseus, washed up, half dead, on the shores of Calypso's island. Well, the goddess, the gracious goddess, came down to rescue him. She brought him back to her cool cavern in the island's interior, and she nursed him back to full health. And then the hero Odysseus and the glorious goddess Calypso had insatiable hero goddess sex for the next seven long days and nights. But on the morning of the eighth day, Odysseus rolled over in bed and, post-coitally, said the following to Calypso, the gracious goddess. Baby, you were really, really, really great. I mean, seriously, seriously good. And that thing that you do, well, anyway... All I can say, baby, is that you and Circe, <laughs> the two of you should get together sometime, uh, compare notes, if you will. But, uh, well, as great as these last days have been, it's uh, likely time for me to be, well, heading on my way. Funny thing, isn't it, how time passes? And, uh, well, if I stop to do the math, it has been 13 years since I was last home. Good old Pen, she might be beginning to miss me about now. And then the goddess had turned, rolled over in bed, and replied to the hero Odysseus. Hey, not a problem at all, big boy. In fact, uh, I I totally get it. You know, marital duty, etc. Boys gotta do what a boy's gotta do. And, uh, well, just to be uh, fair, quid pro quo, as it were, uh, you're not too shabby in the sack yourself. I mean, for a middle-aged mortal man, at least. And, uh, well, no pressure. I'm not trying to, like, be awkward or make this breakup harder than it has to be. But uh, uh, if you ever are back in this part of the Mediterranean, uh, how do I put this? Uh, Well, my immortal cavern is always open, so to speak. No, anyways, uh, you said you had to go, so you're going to put together a raft or something? Could I help? Provisions? Just tell me what you need. Uh, you know, once it's time to move on, then let's not make this any more difficult than we have to. It'd be kind of nice if you were off the island by noon, if you don't mind. 
And with those kind parting words, Odysseus the hero and Calypso, the love of his seven days, departed ways. Well, after a few days of storms wrought by Poseidon, god of the sea, Odysseus landed on the land of the Phaeacians. And shortly after that, he sailed into Ithaca's harbor, after his long thirteen years away, ready to meet his wife Penelope and his young son, Telemachus. And so, folks, if Homer had have written his Odyssey that way, with Odysseus returning home after 13 years' absence, as opposed to 20, then just what would Odysseus have found waiting for him in Ithaca? Well, the short answer is we already know. And the reason we already know is because Anticlea, Odysseus's mom, told us just a few days earlier. And if you will recall, ladies and gentlemen, just a few days before Odysseus washed up onto the shores of Calypso's island, he had been in the land of the dead, where he had met his recently deceased mother, Anticlea, and asked her for a full intelligence briefing on the status of life inside of Ithaca. And here's what Anticlea had said. Penelope, she is still faithful. No man has taken your kingdom, Odysseus. And Telemachus, he still holds your lands unchallenged. So in short, folks, Odysseus would have found in year 13, when he rolled into the city of Ithaca, peace, order, and good government. His wife, now 28 years old, would be holding the Ithacan throne as a steward in his absence, Telemachus, his son, the heir, would now be 13 years old and still essentially a child and not expected to do much of anything by way of governance. And those lost boys of Ithaca, the sons of the generation of absentee fathers off fighting with Odysseus, well, they would all still be about Telemachus's age, and hence, not yet a political threat to Odysseus's throne or a sexual threat to Penelope's bed. And as to the families of Ithaca, well, none of the mothers or the parents or the wives of that lost generation of Ithacan men would yet know that all of those men had died under the commander Odysseus's watch. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's the first part of our imagination game. So now, let's for fun continue the imagination game by imagining just what sort of a story Homer could have cobbled together out of this peace, order, and good government in year 13, Homecoming. And the short answer, I fear, is that the story Homer could have cobbled together would have been rather boring indeed. All that Homer could have given us by way of a homecoming plot would be the following. Of course, there'd be some sort of an Odysseus-Penelope reunion scene in which Odysseus might or might not have filled Penelope in on all of his adventures with monsters and temptations. And quite possibly, Homer would have then segued into some sort of a gentle and affirming father-son scene in which Odysseus could have sat down with 13-year-old Telemachus and helped to make the boy maybe a little wee bit less of a wuss. And after that... 
well, all that would have been left and available to Homer would have been some sort of a final montage of homecoming conquering hero, a loyal, dutiful wife, and strapping young son standing together in front of the Ithacan throne. And then, inside of this Home in Year 13 tale, well, Homer would have had no choice but to roll the credits, and as the lyre players struck up something overwrought and shamelessly emotional, possibly a number by Elton John or God's Forgive Them, Celine Dion, Homer's Odyssey, the Home in 13 Years version, would have come to an end. And as to the critics, well, here's how they would have reviewed Homer's Odyssey. <clears throat> the Odyssey, a rip-roaring action-adventure yarn, chock-full of eye-popping monsters and eye-pleasing temptations. The plot, such as it is, offers very little by way of intellectual depth or emotional resonance, but inside of the confines of its modest ambitions it manages to serve up some first-rate, escapist fun. 3.5 stars out of 5. Parental warning. Graphic violence, drug use, nudity, and excessive sexual activity. And ladies and gentlemen, if that's what had have happened, then the critics would be correct. Because the Odyssey would essentially have become simply a comic book action-adventure yarn, with a unconvincing and emotionally empty family reunion denouement tacked awkwardly on to its end. But now, folks, I want you to imagine the possibilities open to Homer if he could find a way to delay his hero's homecoming from year 13 all the way to year 20. Just think of the possibilities. Well, first of all, of course, all of Odysseus's intel on the peace, order, and good government in Ithaca, well, it would now all be badly, 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 seven years, in fact, out of date. And next, the situation in Ithaca will not have remained static between years 13 and year 20. Why? Well, first of all, Penelope is now 35 years old, and now she has gone without a husband for 20 long years. So, in year 13, it was faithful Penelope. But, in year 20, is Penelope still faithful? Or has she, quite reasonably, given up on her husband ever coming home and decided that she should, for her own good, for her kingdom's good, marry another man. Next, young Telemachus is no longer young Telemachus. Now he is a 20-year-old man, and he should be assuming the Ithacan throne if everybody really believes that dad is dead. But the question is, has Telemachus, who at 13 was more than a little bit of a wuss and a mama's boy, well, has he managed in the last seven years to transform into some sort of a man capable of governing a kingdom. And next, those lost boys of Ithaca. They are now 20-year-old men too, posing a real threat to Odysseus's throne and to Odysseus's wife. And finally, 
There's the people of Ithaca. Are they still loyal to their old, missing, long-gone king? Or have the people of Ithaca quite rightly given up on waiting and now serve and obey and are loyal to a new man sitting on the Ithacan throne? And so, Odysseus, rolling into the harbor of Ithaca in year 20, will quite rightly know that he has absolutely no idea at all what is waiting for him. But what he will know is that what is waiting for him will patently not be peace, order, or good government in Ithaca. And so quite clearly, folks, from the perspective of Homer the storyteller, considering his plot options, well, if he could find a way to delay Odysseus's homecoming for an additional seven years, from year 13 up to year 20, well, he knew that he would be creating for his Odyssey story a vastly more interesting and compelling plot. There would be better opportunity for action, adventure, and intrigue, but there would also be some opportunity for serious high drama, emotional involvement, and character development. So, how did Homer, or Homers, or the committee of people over time cobbling together the Odyssey, decide to buy seven years? Well, we'll never really know the answer. It's been lost for at least 2,500 years. But we can speculate that the first option would have been to have sat down and written another full seven years worth of Odysseus action-adventure stories on Poseidon's wine-dark sea. That would have bought the time that Homer needed. But by far and away, the easiest thing to do was simply to create the Calypso story. And then to insert that story bang into the middle of the plot the very moment after Odysseus had lost the final one of his ships and his crew. And then, well, all you've got to do is blithely announce to your listeners and readers that Odysseus stayed on Calypso's island for seven long years. Now, folks, if this is what happened, then it certainly explains why the Calypso years of Homer's Odyssey are so ridiculously thin on plot details. Because, if this is what happened, then the Calypso years were never actually part of the original Great Wandering story, but instead were a later addition to the plot, cobbled into it as a homecoming delay device. So, in the next upcoming episode of Odyssey the Podcast, we are going to dive directly in to the Ithacan part of Homer's story. And I will introduce you to a host of human monsters and human temptations. Monsters and temptations that Penelope and Telemachus have been battling on Ithaca, while Odysseus has been battling his comic book monsters and his comic book temptations out on Poseidon's wine-dark sea. It's going to be a lot of fun. So in the meantime, have yourselves awesome days, and we will talk again real soon. Bye for now.